church, it is only because of Christ that I can stand here before you today and open this book and read God's words and have anything meaningful to say at all. Today's text is hard because the first command that we come to in this text is to understand that there will be difficulty in these last days. And the focus of the text is not difficulty out in the world. We would like for it to be that, but that is not Paul's focus. Rather, his aim is for us to understand difficulty in these last days within the church. And if we're honest, there is no shortage of difficulties in these days. Today's text, 2 Timothy 3, is a continuation of much of what we covered uh, from last week's sermon that Hunter preached in verses 14 through 26. In the church in Ephesus, there were false teachers, those who were detracting from the centrality of the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And Paul wanted to address this head-on in his letter to Timothy. Last week, Hunter walked through how we are to respond to false teachers who engage in quarrels, irreverent babble, and foolish and ignorant speculations. Today, Paul's writing in chapter 3 reveals the character and the conduct of these whose aim it is to diminish the gospel of Christ and offers as remedy the very thing these false teachers stand opposed to, the gospel. But before we begin, as this text is quite difficult, I want to outline some directions for application and interpretation today that I think will help us. First, my aim today is not to personally attack anyone. God's word, sharper than a two-edged sword, is capable enough to do that on its own. And to be honest, working through this text has been so hard. Not only because Microsoft Word crashed on Thursday night and over half my sermon manuscript got deleted and I was up till one in the morning, Friday into Saturday, rewriting a lot of what I had already written. That was all hard. But what was really hard was I wanted to make this text about everyone else and not about me and my heart. And I can assure you, based on my reading of the text, that God's word can cut like a scalpel. And we need it to. But as I have read these words, he has been faithful and full of grace to break my pride and remind me of my need for him to help me see the ways that I have sinned in these difficult days. He has granted me faith and hope to live in these days. And my sincere prayer is that he does this work and more in our lives today. Second, I want us to see that this text isn't just for the Ephesian church. It is for us, for treasuring Christ church. So if this text is written to Timothy, then it has something to say to the leaders of our church. If this text is written by extension to the Ephesian church, then by extension, it has something to say to our church, to TCC. If this text is written to Christians, then it has something to say to those who claim Christ. And if this text is written about false teachers and struggling sinners within the church, then it has something to say directly to struggling sinners and false teachers within churches today. And all of this means, lastly, that we must come to this text with humility. It means that we have to read this text with the aim of first applying its truth to our own heart before we seek to apply it to someone else. It means we have to seek and work hard to apply the truth of what Paul is saying here to our church before we try to apply it to some other church or some other group of people. 
And none of this is easy. It's going to be quite hard. But let's do this together and begin by God asking God for help. Let's pray. God, in Proverbs 27, your word tells us, as in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man. Oh God, reveal to us today the depths of our heart, the ways that we have sinned. Help us to see plainly our great need for You. Lead us to find hope in You only. God, destroy pride in our hearts. Break us before You today that we would be filled with the truth of the Gospel that there is no way that we could ever save ourselves. But God, You have already done the hardest thing. You crushed your own son so that all of your promises to us, including life everlasting in Jesus, are yes and amen in him. God, send your spirit and power today to meet with us, to help us as we do the difficult work of hearing from you today in your word. And it's in the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. So over the past several weeks, we've seen that Paul wrote 2 Timothy so that the church will remember and persevere in the joy and peace of the gospel through suffering in the last days. That's why he wrote the letter. And we're going to come to today's text to find that Paul wrote chapter 3, to demonstrate that understanding the ill of our age begins in uncovering what lies in the depths of our own hearts and offers as remedy the good news of the gospel of God in Christ Jesus. Let me say that again. Paul wrote today's text to demonstrate that understanding the ill of our age begins by uncovering what lies in the depths of our hearts and offers as remedy the good news of the gospel of God in Christ Jesus. So we're going to work through the text in two parts. First, in verses 1 to 9, we're going to see that Paul writes to help Timothy and the church understand that these last days are dark days. Pride is the problem And false teaching is the outcome. Paul will conclude in verses 10 through 17 with the remedy to this ill. Continuing in the good news of the gospel of God in Christ Jesus. So let's begin in verse 1 of the text. Paul writes, but understand this. That in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Paul begins the text in verse 1, as I mentioned at the outset, with a command. The church is to understand that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. And he seeks to demonstrate definitively what will make these days so dark. In verse 2, Paul identifies the the genesis of this difficulty by describing people, Ephesian church members, as lovers of themselves. It is this love of self that lies at the heart of the difficulty within the church in Ephesus. And it is a love of self that lies at the heart of the difficulty in our own age. In our own church. 
In the Ephesian church, those who engaged in quarrels, irreverent babble, and foolish and ignorant speculations find the origin of their sin also lies in their own utter self-centeredness. And as we continue in verses 2 through 4, we see in the text what begins in unadulterated love of self ends in love opposed to God. These false teachers literally love themselves rather than loving God. Paul then describes, as we saw in 19 words, the character of those who are causing this difficulty within the church in these last days. doesn't look good. It looks like this. So this is the fruit of their hearts. It's abusive. It's slanderous. It's disobedient to parents. And the heart that produces this rotten fruit It's even worse. Our aim in this section of the text is not to spend time defining each of these terms. And some of you just looked at all those words and your watch and just let out a sigh of relief because you thought we were going to be here all day. It's not what we're going to do. Rather, this text seems to explore thematically the full manner of evil that is produced by a heart that is in love with itself and the world over Christ. What is absolutely essential here is that we see that the diagnosis to the ill of our age, to the ill of our church, does not lie anywhere else other than in the depths of our own hearts. And this is crucial We can't go further in the text until we reckon with the reality that much of the evil in the world and in our church finds its origin in evil in me, produced from a heart that is more committed to, more passionate about, more in love with me than God or anyone else. And once any of us commits ourselves to the way of pride, we bind ourselves to its ideals. We then walk in the way of our own we walk in the way of our own wisdom we forsake the goodness in doing that of walking in Christ's way do not be fooled pride is its own gospel it captivates our mind it fixes our hearts to a message of death masquerading as life And the gospel of pride doesn't just exist within us. Please hear this. No, it transforms us into evangelists of our way, proponents of our truth, saviors of our own lives. Pride is the fertile soil of false teaching. Pride is the fertile soil of false teaching. In 2 Timothy, throughout this letter, we've seen that Paul addresses this false teaching more clearly than in any of his other pastoral letters. He does this in two ways. Number one, he names names. We saw that last week, and we're going to see it again in chapter 4. He specifically calls out the people who were detracting from the work of the gospel. But secondly, He identifies here, and really only here, the specific nature of the false teaching that was infecting the church at Ephesus. Paul's concern for this church was to persevere the entirety of the gospel of Jesus, including the future of a bodily resurrection. Some in Ephesus, though, were clinging to Greek philosophy. They were thinking they could hold on to that and just add their faith in Christ to it. The problem was that their love of Greek philosophy taught them that there was no redeeming the evil of the physical. And this led them to deny the possibility of bodily resurrection in Jesus. And as a result, led them to deny the power of the gospel at work. And this happens. This clinging to what we love and trying to add the gospel to it, it happens so subtly in our discipleship. I want to take a moment and share an example from my own life. Perhaps the most formative years of my discipleship happened in middle school and high school. So let's take a trip back to 1999 discipleship. What was I taught? 
being a Christian meant torching every CD that wasn't contemporary Christian music. It meant kissing, dating goodbye. My sisters in Christ were taught that the purity of their brothers was up to them and how they dressed. And in the end, we all got a ring. But being a Christian also meant being a Republican. It meant pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. The gospel was about law and order, where the blessed are rich and the poor are outcast. I was taught by many in my church, ever so subtly, that the gospel of Christ and the good news of the American dream could coexist as equal doctrines to guide my life forward in righteousness. And for a lot of my life, I missed how my Christianity was slowly morphing into a love of America and its riches and my comfort over and against love of God in Christ. I was learning a gospel that honored self-promotion and not self-sacrifice. I was, I, I am, often, a lover of myself rather than a lover of God. And pride in me was the fertile soil that grew false teaching. And today, while I'm not aware of anyone in our church openly espousing heresy as in Ephesus, and when I say heresy, what I mean is teaching that is contrary to the Scriptures and the church's historical understanding of it. While I'm not aware of that, the text does demand nonetheless that we answer these questions. What devastation is pride wreaking in our hearts? What destruction is it inflicting on our gospel? In answering these questions, many will find that we are trying to survive dark days with a self-love that's actually self-abuse. Self-centeredness desires to rule over our entire lives, demands the destruction of those around us, and is committed to the corruption of Christ's gospel in me. And how does Paul describe those in the church who proclaim this false gospel? Look back at the text in verse 5. They have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. This false teaching has the appearance of godliness, but absolutely no power. And make no mistake, Paul is making plain that proud hearts will always find and proclaim false teaching. Mine certainly did. Justin Giboney of the Anne campaign is so helpful at this point. He writes, Many of us are looking for a theology that justifies our thoughts, our inclinations, desires, and cultural preferences without any demand for personal transformation, that is, sanctification. We'll likely find it. Because there are always false teachers ready to accommodate us. But what we get from them certainly won't be biblical. How can we know then when our theology, our gospel, our lives have turned from Christ and in on ourselves? Think about the words you use when you talk about theology, about the gospel. Is your speech proud? Is it arrogant, abusive, and ungrateful? Is your doctrine unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, and without self-control? Is your theology brutal? Can it hate good and rejoice in treachery? What of our lives? Are they reckless, swollen with conceit? In love with the pleasure of the demise of our opponent? What of our love? 
Is it held by Christ and directed to neighbor? Let me be plain here as well. I want there to be no mistake. If your doctrinal arguments are made employing abusive language, your doctrine is dead. If your gospel proclamation goes forth as slander cloaked in satire, that is not good news. If your theology requires heartlessness, brutality, and treachery towards brothers and sisters in Christ who dare disagree with your latest hot take, if it requires that, it is not of God. It might have the appearance of godliness, but church, it not only lacks the power of Christ, it denies it. Please do not miss this. No gospel can be good news apart from what God has accomplished in Christ Jesus. And this is why. In verse 5, Paul instructs the church to avoid false teaching. He does this because sometimes this teaching is obvious, but sometimes it isn't. We see throughout all of Paul's writings that he is intimately aware of the subtle ways false doctrine deceives and destroys. Moreover, Paul has argued at length that there is a need for kindness in teaching those who are in error, as we saw last week in verses 24 through 26. The command to avoid in the text does not demand determination of all of our personal relationships with those who err. That's not what avoid these people is talking about. But it does suggest that the call for Timothy and for us is to practice a separation in spirit from the actions and attitudes of false teachers. It calls us to love false teachers while standing against false doctrines. And this is hard because as Michael Emlett writes, love will always be inconvenient to us. Love actually has the audacity, he writes, to ask us to drop what we're doing in order to attend to the needs of another. It presses up against our desires for autonomy, Comfort, ease, safety, and control. It punctures the bubble of self-importance and self-protection. This is why Jesus, knowing our hearts, turned self-interest on its head when he said in Matthew 7, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do to them. The truth is, we don't want to be inconvenienced by these startling words of our Savior. Because it's inconvenient. It's inconvenient to pause the task that you're working on and listen to your five-year-old tell of her backyard discovery. It's inconvenient to help with the dishes when you're dead tired and you just want to relax. It's inconvenient to grapple, especially if you are part of the majority culture as I am, with the fact that George Floyd's murder proves yet again what people of color have been saying year after year after year after year, that equal treatment under the law appears to be a myth. It is inconvenient to hold your tongue and really listen to your friend tell of ways that you hurt her. It is inconvenient to wear a mask to protect your neighbor. It's inconvenient to social distance. Y'all, it's hot outside. That's terrible. I don't like it. And yet, we see time and time again that inconvenience is the way of love. And the text is showing us that while it is always going to be inconvenient to speak the truth in love to a brother or sister who errs, it is what love demands of us. If pride is the fertile soil of false teaching, then love and kindness in Christ guard our hearts against pride. 
and protect us and others from false teaching. And though Timothy calls for the church to persevere in kindness by pursuing those who erred in chapter 2, we see tragically here in chapter 3 that they seem to persist nonetheless. Look back with me at the text beginning in verse 6. For among them are those who creep into households, capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Here we see that false teachers take to the streets. They creep and capture the weak in Ephesus with a gospel that has the appearance of godliness, but again offers none of its power. And before we go on to examine the conduct of these false teachers, it's important to first look at who these women are and what Paul is saying about them. Paul in the text is not stating that all women are weak. Quite the opposite. Paul goes to great lengths by using a rare diminutive form of the word women to demonstrate that he is talking about this specific group of women in Ephesus. After all, we saw in chapter 1 that Paul commends Lois and Eunice, Timothy's grandmother and mother, for their labors in discipling Timothy and for their love of the truth of the gospel. This text isn't about weak women. It's about weak church members. And as we continue in verse 6, we see that this weakness is primarily moral rather than intellectual. And while we don't know the full circumstances that surround the weakness of these women, we do know from the text that these women are burdened with sin and led astray by various passions. They search out good news and find none. They, like the false teachers who seek to deceive them, erred in making the cause of their spiritual sickness out to be the cure. Look back at the text. In verse 7, these women are always learning, literally forever getting information, yet are never able to acknowledge the truth. In their restless quest for theology that justifies their loves, these women turned to every new and novel doctrine that was brought to their attention, but never saw plainly in Christ a truth strong enough to defeat the sin and death that was literally crushing them. Paul doesn't just give insight into how the false gospel is spreading and the danger of that. He provides encouragement to Timothy and to this church and to us in verses 8 and 9 that it is the church built upon Christ and his gospel, not these false teachers, that will persevere in dark days. Here Paul summons the story of the magicians of Pharaoh from Exodus 7 and 8 to make his argument clear. While the names of Janus and Jambres don't appear in the Old Testament, so if you're going to Exodus 7 and 8, you're not going to find those names. Don't hunt for them. They're not there. But they are there in Jewish, pagan, and Christian literature and serve as an apt illustration for the lives of the false teachers in the Ephesian church. In Exodus, we see that these magicians, for a time, were able to replicate the works of God, but ultimately showed that any power they had was not going to last, and it didn't. Any ability they possessed was futile in light of Almighty God. And it was the same for these false teachers in Ephesus. It is the same for those of us who declare a gospel that has the appearance of godliness but denies its power. These false teachers are described in verse 8 as corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Stop and think about what Paul is saying here very carefully. Paul is stating as clearly as he can for Timothy and the church that there are some within the church who appear godly, but whose teaching and conduct 
will ultimately prove that their faith is worthless, rejected, disqualified. And this is the warning for those who are false teachers. But it also serves as encouragement for those of us who are seeking to persevere in these dark days. The proud, those who are opposed to truth, the text tells us, will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all, just as it was with Janus and Jambres. When they tried to replicate miracles, they had no power to perform. So let me say this with confidence from the Holy Scriptures. For those who are fiercely and unequivocally committed to a gospel on their terms only, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church and neither will your false teaching. But before we move into verses 10 through 17, before we go any further, I want us to stop and really ponder, really consider and examine our hearts. How can this happen to us? I want us to understand not only that these days are dark, but to understand fully that our hearts produce darkness. Namely, I want to explain how this self-love which begins so subtly can become so devastating in false teaching as we've seen from the text. Ken Sandy writes, and this is so helpful, anytime we long for something apart from God, fear something more than God, or trust in something other than God to make us happy, fulfilled, or secure, we are no longer engaging in the worship of God. Y'all, we don't even see it happening most of the time. Our self-centeredness blinds us to the subjugation of Christ in our hearts. Our want of money and power and comfort and pleasure and popularity in the American dream It causes our lives to spin out of control and go up in flames. Church, we are weaker than we know. It often hurts deeply to be human. We need God more than we realize. And yes, we need each other. Don't miss this. That is why being in Christ entails being in his body. His people, the church. In these dark days, we need the gospel, but we also need each other to help us cling to hope and fight for faith. And this is where Paul turns his attention next. We've talked about dark days. Where is the actual good news? It is continuing in the gospel. Look back with me at the text beginning in verse 10. Paul writes, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and my sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. As we come to this part of the text, we need to remember that Paul is awaiting execution. He's about to die and understands from this desolate place that his son and the faith, Timothy, and this Ephesian church, they face great difficulty. And what does he offer by way of encouragement? He offers Christ. Though Paul has suffered, 
been persecuted, stands wrongly condemned, is abandoned by many on earth with no possessions to his name, he declares nonetheless that it was all worth it because he has Christ. Paul isn't boasting. He's reminding Timothy of the difficulty of his life and of the surpassing worth and beauty of Jesus, culminating in this truth in verse 11. That in all of this, he was never once, not for one second, abandoned by God. Indeed, the Lord rescued him from it all. And Paul doesn't use this language by accident. He's doing it to draw our attention back to Psalm 34, where David writes, I sought the Lord, and he answered me. And delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. And their faces shall never be ashamed. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that takes refuge in him. When the righteous cry out for help, David says the Lord bends his ear from heaven and hears. And delivers them out of all of their trouble. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. So even though persecution will come, even though evil people persist and imposters of the faith go from bad to worse, the Lord has not, will not, fail. The white supremacy seems a force too strong. Though COVID inflicts havoc and destroys lives, though abortion massacres life after life at every turn, and though unrest seems to reign in this day, I can assure you, church, that God is faithful. He is sovereign and he is good and he is at work right now to deliver his children from it all. All this is hard. And yet the call is to persevere. How do we do that? Look back at the text in verse 14. The command is to continue in the gospel. Paul is laboring here to remind Timothy and the church in Ephesus that we do not graduate from the gospel. The verb continue here is loaded with meaning. It can be translated as hold to or remain in. Think of it as literally to make your home in. Stay with me here. What is a home? What does it offer us and what are we to do there? Home is meant to be where we live, where we rest, where we work and play. We are meant to love and be loved there. It is where we feast, sometimes where we weep. Its design is to offer protection and comfort and a place to belong. And the good news for these dark days is we have in the gospel a place to call home as aliens in this world. If pride is the fertile soil of false teaching, then the gospel of God in Christ Jesus is a heavenly home for suffering, sojourned saints in these dark days. The gospel then demands more than merely floating along in orthodoxy. It calls the Christian to a commitment to abide in and live out the truth that God, once and for all, has defeated sin and death in Jesus. We persevere in hope by making our home in the gospel, by living in it. Paul exhorts Timothy to begin in the beginning. He brings Timothy's attention back to the beginning of the letter in chapter 1 to the gospel that he learned from his mother and grandmother and an army of saints, including Paul, who have reared him up in the way everlasting through the sacred writings, the scriptures. This is the good news that we need. 
We need the good news of the gospel that we have in the sacred scriptures. Because God's word, no matter how dark the days, is able to bring forth life from death. It is strong to bring righteousness from the defeat of sin. It is able to cultivate wisdom in a life formerly committed to folly. It is, as Paul writes, able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And do not miss this. The gospel is capable of saving a wretch like me. Like you. Which brings us to the end of the text. Back at verse 16. Paul ends this section by saying that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness that the messenger of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. God has breathed out words and given them to us that we would be equipped to persevere in these dark days by understanding the darkness of our hearts and the hope and help that is ours in Christ Jesus. The inspired scriptures are valuable to cultivate faithfulness as Paul outlines in these verses. First, we see in the text that God's words are useful for teaching. They show us the way that we are supposed to live. Secondly, they're useful for reproof. That is, the scriptures don't just communicate a vision of what the Christian life is against, of what it is not for. It admonishes us whether our fault is personal or doctrinal. The scriptures are sufficient to show sinners their failures and to make plain to them the hope and peace that spring forth from a life of faithful obedience in Christ. In these two things, they warn us against the way of pride, show us the way that we are meant to walk, and make clear false teaching that we would not fall into folly. The final two uses demonstrate how God's word provides training in the way of Christ. So not just what we're supposed to know, but how we're supposed to live. First, we see the scriptures correct. That is, they restore the misguided to the right path. The term correction is used only here in the New Testament. And it should remind us of the father in Mark 9 who cried out through tears to Christ, I believe, help my unbelief. There are moments where we desire to love God, but we just don't know how. The scriptures are useful, valuable to show us the way forward toward right belief. They don't just correct our belief. They are useful to show us how we go about walking in that belief. They are useful and good for training and righteousness that the messenger of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. So as I conclude, there are four points of application that 2 Timothy 3 calls us to today and that God's word is sufficient to help us pursue. First is repentance. All of us in these dark days are are tempted by the allure that we know best. Pride may have subtly become our gospel. For others, we have loved money and pleasure rather than Christ. Perhaps as you've been sitting here today, you've realized that you have been abusive with your words. I have been in moments. Perhaps you have sought to engage in satire, but all you have really done is slander. Many have been treacherous with our quickness to abandon brothers and sisters in this family. We are reckless with our passions and lusts. We are broken 
people who are weak and needy. And we need to repent of our sin. Yes, God in His Word, I think, makes it quite plain. And God's Spirit today desires to work in His Word to bring about repentance in you and in me and in this church. But God's Word doesn't end in a call for repentance, no. It actually offers us something. It offers forgiveness and life as we remember the gospel. As you repent, recall the moment that God made your dead heart alive. Turn quickly today to remember the gospel that there is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. But for some today, you can't remember because you've never believed. You've run after loves and lovers that were never meant to satisfy you. Sojourner, you were meant to find your home in God and His gospel. Repent today and taste for the first time the good news of God's love for you in Christ Jesus. God's Word doesn't stop at its work in repentance and remembrance alone. It requires us to live in the world by being reconciled to one another. I want to speak clearly here. There is conflict in our church. And this text addresses it quite head on. And that conflict is making these days darker. The gospel calls us to repentance and reconciliation. It's what it does. And if we want to be, if we want the gospel to be something else, then we're fashioning the gospel into something that it's not. And that, as we've seen from the text, is pride at work. John Perkins was so helpful for me this week in his book, One Blood, where he writes, brokenness is the opposite of pride. It is the willingness to admit our faults without any concern for our reputation. It is the willingness to lay down our rights and do whatever benefits the other. Indeed, it is putting the needs of others above our own. And brokenness lays the groundwork for reconciliation to occur. I know that confession and brokenness and reconciliation are almost un-American terms. We pride ourselves on our rugged individualism and our right to be right. So it may not be American to admit our faults and humble ourselves before one another. But if we want to be like Christ, this is what we must do. Church, a call of today's text is to go to one another in brokenness and hope and be reconciled the person you need to be reconciled to is here today, take time and do that before you get in your car and go anywhere. If not, then make an effort in Christ this week to call, to text, to Zoom, to send a carrier pigeon or a smoke signal. I don't care. Find a way to pursue forgiveness and reconciliation this week because it is what the gospel calls us to. And until we do this, our gospel mission as a church will be hindered by our pride and refusal to love one another. And I don't know about you, but my pride is not worth wrecking the gospel. And lastly, the text calls us to redeem every single thing we do. And repentance and remembrance go forward in the power of the gospel and redeem your work, your parenting, your friendships, your hobbies, your marriage, your life, and thus bring light to dark days. So as we prepare to continue on in worship by singing, 
by pursuing repentance, by remembering the gospel, by reconciling, and by living lives that redeem everything in the world. We need to ask for help. And Garrett Kell, a pastor in Virginia, wrote a prayer that I want to pray over us as we end today. Let's pray. Oh Lord, shouldn't it be easier for your people to love each other? Jesus bled to make us one, yet our oneness often feels untrue. How long will we mute the suffering of our brothers and sisters? How long will we echo Cain's slight, am I my brother's keeper? Why, God, do we remain content with callousness rather than endeavor to cultivate compassion together? O God of sovereign grace, we plead for help. Because rather than bear one another's burdens, we have blamed each other for having burdens at all. Forgive us, we have been satisfied to ignore evil that does not harm us and have forsaken those made in your image, sisters and brothers who are being harmed. God, grant forgiveness, we have been selective in the sins that we grieve over. Bitterness blinds us from seeing, hardened hearts hinder us from hearing. God, we justify our ignorance and excuse our bitterness. The effects of our sin on the fellowship of your people is devastating. Trust is broken. Love is stifled. Hope is darkened. Perseverance is wearied. Oh God, far too often we have been unlike Jesus. While he entered into others' pain and comfort, we desire to flee from it. God, the gates of hell seem too strong sometimes. Yet Jesus promised that they shall not prevail. He promised to build his church and he never lives. God, help us believe. Build your church. Where there is sin, expose it. Where we are blind, enlighten us. Where there is prejudice, purge it. Give us eyes today to see people as you do. And give us faith and comfort to grieve over what grieves you. And above all in this, lift our eyes to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who shed his blood to forgive our sins and unify us as one people, sisters and brothers in you. We are needy. God, you are able. Help us, we pray. Amen.